0: Let us pray. Father God, as we are before your word this morning, let all distraction in our often wayward hearts be melted away. Let us just sit for a little while and partake from your word. So that we might be blessed in its offering, so that through this bread we might have life. Yes, in Jesus' name, amen. When it comes to our lives, we worship a God who. When we are troubled, and we're very much in a passage where Moses is troubled. You know, as this passage began, Moses has this boldness uh, to approach this burning bush. He hears his name said twice. He says, here I am, Lord. And yet the longer he is in the presence of God, the more troubled, the more uncomfortable seems to become. We often can find reasons to neglect God. We very rarely, we need a, a far greater work of faith to neglect the things that trouble our heart, that trouble our mind. And this message really speaks to that reality and and the reality of this passage is this god has made clear from the very beginning he is there with moses he is there in the presence of moses and that he will be with him in every step of the way but moses's life is changing it's changing dramatically it's changing in a moment and he's trying to to stand firm on this unsettled reality he believes that he knew where his story would soon end and in that change he is unsettled he is uncomfortable And we can actually see this at the very beginning in the first verse of this passage. Moses answers God in in yet another protest to God, his third major protest to God. But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, Lord, the Lord did not appear to you. And there's an irony in that statement, right? Is it really the people who have said that, that they, that they won't believe Moses? Who's actually the person of unbelief in this moment? Moses. Moses has an unbelief of this moment. He's, he's doing that classic kind of projection that often we can do when we, we get caught in uh, maybe a sin or something. It's, it's they. It's someone else's fault. It's, it's kind of that projection His lack of faith, his lack of confidence, which will be exposed by the time we're uh, through this part of uh, the passages of, of Exodus. We'll see it, I believe, in verse 13, if I'm not mistaken. But he puts his doubt on other people. Something is about to change in his life, and he does not want to go down that road he doesn't want to walk down that path even though god's made clear he's with him i have a crazy childhood one that people wouldn't believe but one of the crazy realities of my childhood is that one of my friends in high school had bodyguards like bodyguards that stayed in the high school parking lot when he was in school he was connected to a wealthy Mexican family. Uh, he often still lived in Mexico. They had they had property in San Diego as well. Um, to what that individual's family did, um, I'll leave that for another sermon. But as an unregenerate teenager, uh, when I hung out with him, uh, I had bodyguards by extension, too. And I just, I just remember as this young teenager, just the kind of confidence and protection I would feel. Like, who, who else's prom limo was followed by a car with bodyguards? <laughs> Again, it's, it's kind of a surreal thing. You go down to the mall with him and you have bodyguards with you. I never saw the bodyguards intervene for him, but actually one time in Tijuana, the bodyguards intervened for me and and there was somebody, you know, I'm a tall, big, white, oafish man and um, somebody wanted to take a pot shot at me. I didn't do anything to the individual, but they were coming at the gringo with a glass bottle and the bodyguards intervened. And I just remember as an unbeliever just kind of how cocky and arrogant because nothing was sanctified about. I felt in those moments. And yet we as a believer, we have God with us. We have the God who says, I promise you, you don't need to be troubled. I am with you. I am in your presence. I am in your midst. And yet, what should we do? We surrender ourselves to trouble. We forget about the security that we have with God. And, and Moses, again, is an illustration in this moment in one sense of forgetting that fact. Forgetting that we have far more reason for confidence than an unregenerate teenager does in some uh, Mexican baby mafia henchmen that were guarding my friend. At the time, we're no longer friends, uh, but but we don't practically feel that way. And God knows this about Moses, and so He asks you a question. If God asks you a question in Scripture. Of course, it's never because God needs the answer. But what's the question God asked? It's in verse two. What is that in your hand? Well, what would it have been? We know from the passage, but. It was the shepherd's staff. It's quite likely that this same staff had been with Moses for now 40 years. He's been a shepherd now for 40 years. It probably has divots in the wood from where he grabbed it. Actually, I just saw this week. Apparently, the Met in New York, the museum, has a has a shepherd's staff that dates to t- 1200 B.C., Incredible, but it's a shepherd's staff. That's what's in his hand. The source of comfort—a a shepherd's staff or a shepherd. He he probably clinged to it closer than his wife. Here he is. He's out in the wilderness. He he wouldn't. He would have gone to sleep with it. He would have. He would always kept it at bay. He would have struck out with this shepherd's staff. It had been a source of comfort for Moses like a source of great comfort and peace and God's going to change that he's going to change this object of court comfort into something for God's use in a unique way and so God tells Moses to basically let go to throw this this staff and it turns into a serpent. It turns into a serpent. And seeing this sudden change of what once brought Moses great comfort now becomes something of great fear for him, he runs away. He does kind of that natural response. He, he runs away. And what do we want to do in a spiritual sense when God changes Certain aspects of our life, we often want to run away as if we can run away from the God who is with us. This is the serpent staff that Moses would have protected his sheep from snakes with. This is the serpent staff that Moses would have grabbed the sheep that were errantly walking away. This is the serpent staff that would have protected Moses' In his life and its change. And the amazing thing about this serpent staff is that it actually survives 800 years after Moses. It actually is a serpent staff that not only Moses had, but it eventually gets passed down. It eventually gets passed down even through the kings. The kings themselves had access to it until the point in time where Hezekiah, king hezekiah in his reforms in seeing this serpent staff being worshiped as an object of worship has it destroyed but god has changed this little dead piece of wood the best thing you can ever read on this serpent staff is by francis Schaeffer. it's called uh no little people no small places i believe Well worth reading. If you if you want a copy of it, email me after the sermon. I'll give you I'll let you read it. But Francis Schaeffer points out that this serpent staff, this little dead piece of wood, in the hands of a living God, will do remarkable things. It does remarkable things in the passage we're in. It turns into a serpent itself. But uh that serpent, of course, this this staff will also lead to other great moments, other great wonders and miracles, the parting of seas, the, the turning of the Nile into blood, the 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 freeing people from poison itself when they look upon it, which the Gospel of John eventually points out in chapter 3 is an illustration of the Gospel itself, of how we look to Christ in order to be cleansed from the poison of sin. One other thing I want to point out about this little serpent staff. As it's passed down through the kings, when we think of Psalm 23, that great psalm that As people often want to hear it in their own moments of transition from this life to the next, there's that little line by David, the King David. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And one of the things about this serpent staff that we often, this staff of Moses, we don't think about as it's going to be called by the end of this chapter, now the rod of God, the staff essentially of God, is that David had access to that staff. And so, in part, I believe some of what David's saying is, I remember what you did for Moses. I remember that when Moses was troubled, when Moses doubted, that you still, through this staff, whether it was evading an army, or going up against the wicked Pharaoh, or or what have you. But you answered him faithfully as a good God in all his times of travel troubles, and he would have been able to see this staff. He would have had access to it, as he considered and wrote the words of Psalm 23. And so this is the first sign. Actually, the book of Corinthians, and uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 22 through 25, it tells us something I think is very helpful for us to consider in this moment. The difference between sign, signs and wonders. Even Jesse had a slide uh, from Peter's sermon, Nax, uh, day of Pentecost, talking about signs and wonders. What's the difference? The Bible seems to hint there is a difference. This is the difference between signs and wonders. Signs are for believers. Signs help build the faith of believers. When we are in troubled times and we can see the work and handiwork of God, the sign of God's fingerprints, His providential plan in our lives, those signs are meant to give us comfort in our troubled times. Whereas wonders, wonders are what the unbeliever sees. Oh, that's incredible. That's amazing. And yet, as we'll see throughout the Exodus story, wonders don't change unbeliever. The wonders that Pharaoh saw did not change his heart. It didn't affirm his faith. It didn't grow his faith. But signs. It was the signs are for the faith, faithful, for the believer. And so God took this thing of Moses in his hand, this thing of security, and he turned it into a serpent, and Moses ran from the serpent. And the Lord says to Moses in verse 4, Put your hand and catch it by the tail. And so Moses reaches out his hand, and he catches it by the tail and became a staff in his hand once more. And the purpose of the staff, as we hinted to earlier, is so that people, that they might believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, has appeared to you. And so the purpose of this sign is to strengthen the faithful. And then again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. I should have worn a jacket. The cloak would have been close, a a pocket, a bosom, he's asked it. It would have been close to his heart, a little pocket that you would put something secure by. So God tells him to basically go inside of his cloak and reach his hand in. And now there's a little bit of minor debate about this verse. Some see this as a foreshadowing of the sign of the sixth plague, which is the plague of boils. That's... I don't take that view. There's a reason in the text. Some see this as a sign for what will happen, I believe, in Numbers chapter 12 of leprosy in the camp. I don't take it that way either. And I don't take it that way, actually, because of the wording of this. Because as Moses removed the hand, that he had put in his cloak. It's described this way. He took it out. Behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And that leprous like snow immediately made me think of one of my favorite passages. And it really is one of my favorite passages uh, in all the Old Testament Leviticus chapter 13, starting in verse 9. And The reality of Old Testament leprosy is, is that leprosy often presents itself or presented itself uh, in red kind of blotches. It could be kind of small. It could kind of be contained. And, and so when the community of the faithful kind of builds out their laws and, and their requirements of how do you, how do you deal with pandemics? How do you deal with contagions? Um, our leaders are not consulting that kind of wisdom. But how do you deal with these things? The person with small red blotches in a contained area, that would be, they would be called unclean in the camp. They would actually have to be removed from the camp because those red blotches, they're, they're kind of undetectable in one sense, but, but those would be a, a contagion, a contagion to the camp. So what if you wanted to get back into the camp? Well, let's read these verses. Starting in verse 9, this is what I was just referencing. When a man is afflicted with a leprous disease, he shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall look. And if there is a white swelling in the skin that has turned the hair white, and there is raw flesh in that swelling, so like a reddish thing, it is a chronic leprous disease in the skin of the body. And the priest shall pronounce him unclean. He shall not shut him up for he is unclean. But then there is a second description of leprosy. And it comes to us in verses 12 and 13. And if the leprous disease breaks out on the skin so that the leprous disease covers all the skin of the diseased person from head to foot, so far as the priest can see, then the priest shall look. And if the leprous disease has covered all his body, he shall pronounce him clean of the disease. It has all turned white. He is clean. Here we have a troubled Moses. And a troubled Moses, Is, he has to be doubting also because he knows the problem of sin in his own heart. Leprosy is always tied in Scripture to the idea of sin itself. Think of the death sentence that leprosy was to the community of the faith. Think of how if anybody coming up to you would walk up to you, you had to scream, I'm unclean. I'm unclean. Stay away from me. I'm unclean. And yet God's word offered a a, a point of redemption for the crying leper, for the one who pronounced that they were unclean. And the hope was this. You would actually look at your leprosy and you would hope Please let it turn white. Please let it turn white. Because then it would be clean before the Lord and you'd be welcomed before the community. And so I think this second sign, which is never shown to Pharaoh, I think the second sign that really isn't the sign shown in Numbers 12 is actually dealing with the heart problem of sin. And as Moses looks at this death penalty on his hand. God says, Now take that hand back again, put it inside your robe. Your worry about your health, your worry about the death that is seemingly ensuing on your hand, put it back in close to your heart, and God makes it right again. God restores him to full hell how we are troubled when God seems to, to take things away, to take our health away, and yet we worship the God who says, don't worry, close to my heart, I will restore you. I will restore you to health. And then, as we continue to move through this passage, we have the next sign starts in, uh, really, verse 10. It's described. We have a transitional statement in verse 9. But this sign isn't shown to Moses in this moment. It's actually of a judgment to come. It's of a judgment in the future. Oh, it's not in verse 10, but we read in verse 9, If they will not believe even these two signs... Or listen to your voice, then you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it out on dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on dry ground. When you're in this book of Scripture, when you're in Exodus, it really cannot be emphasized enough how important the Nile was to the Egyptians. The Egyptians truly have one of the great empires in world history, but one of the ironies of the empire that develops is they don't get too caught up in expanding their borders all that much. There's a couple reasons for this. They they develop a belief where if they die outside of Egypt, they they can't necessarily go to the, the afterlife. But also, there is this reality that they're protected by wilderness, and they have this greatest of all rivers that just protects them. It's it's like this heart-shaped river in the middle, and, and their enemies really can't mount a, an aggressive attack against them, it seems. They seem to be so utterly secure. That's why they can have such great building projects that That the world over loves to go see and to go view. I think still today, Cairo is the most traveled airport in the world. People want to see these things. Because in that world, in that ancient world, they were the country of all wisdom. They were the country of the greatest religion. They were the country of the greatest buildings. They were the country of the greatest philosophies. They were the country of the greatest power. They were the the country protected by borders that it seemed that no major army could come against. And God says to those people, I will judge them. I will judge them if they do not hear my voice. They do not receive my word. I will judge that nation. I will turn that which they believe gives them the greatest security, the greatest wealth, the greatest prosperity, I will utterly destroy it. And I'm so happy that we can't even think of a country in our own day where this very thing is being plundered. This very kind of security that we've falsely have surrendered ourselves to as a society. I, of course, speak in just. This was the reality of the three signs, which would be wonders to those who, who do not believe, just wonders. But then Moses says to the Lord, starting in verse 10, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and to tongue, and of tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O oh my Lord, please send someone else. The cat's out of the bag. Moses has finally admitted what this all is about. He is troubled that God is sending him. He does not care enough that God has already promised that he will be with him through it all. It cannot conquer his troubles and his fears in this moment. And it's now, at this moment, the scriptures say of the Lord, he, growed, he's, he was angry. And starting in verse 14, Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. It's interesting that Moses writes But the anger of the Lord is kindled against him when he offers his brother. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as uh, as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. This son of Israel, this son that the Lord has called, this favored son of Israel, this most unique son of Israel in the Old Testament would not go out alone. He would not go out alone. And the irony becomes God is gracious. God grants his older brother to come alongside of him. But actually in Moses' lack of faith, If you really consider the life ministry of Aaron, a lot of times he created more headaches for Moses than he did help. And yet God is gracious, God is kind. I, I almost wonder sometimes if this is why he sends the disciples out two by two. He knows that at those troubled times, those critical moments in our lives, we struggle to just truly rely upon our Lord in those moments. Uh, we, we fear God and coming to God more boldly in such moments. And yet, there is a son of Israel that goes out alone. And for that, we turn quickly to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, to put this in context, Judas has just left to betray the Son of God, betray him unto death. And Peter has just been told, you will betray me also. What stands before Jesus, why we take time in our calendar year to really truly reflect upon the passionate love of Christ, is a road that he has to walk alone. A road that he has to walk in faithfulness to his Father, who prepared this and predestined it, as we looked at below in Sunday school, before the foundations of the world itself. And it's it's incredible. Because in this moment where he knows he's going to be betrayed by all of them, his desire at the beginning of 14—and I I've preached on this passage before, and I just want to pull that one part, but the language here is marital engagement type of language. I'm not really going to dive into that, but I want us to focus on two things. The first words that Christ shares, and then his exchange with Thomas— He begins, of course, let not your hearts be troubled, that when those times come, when things are changed, whether that's objects and things that we have come to appreciate or or even uh, the health, our health, even staring down the idea of death itself, this would apply. This is actually written in the imperative in the Greek. It's a command. It's a command that Moses struggled with. It's a command that we struggle with the idea of let not our hearts be troubled and thomas after he hears jesus talking about this you know here's jesus believe in god believe also in me In my father's house are many rooms and if it were not so i would have told you i go to prepare a place for you just as moses was called to to call the people to the place that God, the land that God had prepared for them? If it were not so, I would have told you. uh, And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself. that where I am, you may be also. This is the God who is always with us. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? He's troubled. He doesn't understand the way. And Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you and me in our times and hours of troubles, in our hardships, and in those moments of great despair. He is that ultimate staff of comfort. He is that ultimate protector of his people. And what does that look like, fleshed out? One final idea of application. This is what it looks like, fleshed out. in the house of the Lord forever. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we come here week in and week out. We are often troubled. We are often worried. Have so many things and so many individuals and in whom we pray for, and and often our own requests, as well, and we're bothered by it all, and we forget, like Moses did in this passage, the simple truth that you are with us, you are alongside of us, and that is enough that is enough in every hour, in every need, in every situation, and yet we constantly throw up things in order to doubt your word, to doubt uh, your faithfulness and to give in to that which troubles us. And yet, Lord, as we saw in this passage, you use those troubles to strengthen the faith of others. Your troubles have a purpose for us. And it's a purpose both to strengthen our faith and the faith of others. And so as we look out and we see those troubled within our community, and we also look out and, and look within and consider the trouble within our own hearts, we thank you that you have not left us, you have not forsaken us, that you continue to bless us, and that our trouble will be reason for the continued growth and faith we have in you and trust we have in you but also for others as well. We praise you for this truth in Jesus' name. Amen.